0: there's a lot a lot of doom and gloom and there's a lot of guilt and shame you know like oh you fly and you drive to work and you eat meat but i think we need to make this like the greatest game of the 21st century Hey, hey hey
1: welcome to who's saving the planet this is Katie Ramesh, and you're with Tony Noro. And this week, we're going to be talking to the CEO and co-founder of the Sacred Rivers Project and Net Zero, Joseph Kelly. We're going to talk about a Forbes-featured magical fungus, not the hallucinogenic kind, but we're still going to take you on a trip.
2: <laughs> and what a trip this was. I had a great time talking to Joseph. As returning listeners of Who's Saving the Planet know, each week, we bring a a variety of guests. Uh, Sometimes they're trailblazing innovators, other times they're sustainability companies and startups, or they're determined activists working to, of course, save the planet. And Joseph Kelly is certainly that. He has this magical mushroom, which is not at all dissimilar to the ones that you might've seen as a kid, playing a certain type of video game with an Italian plumber. Who you all know I'm talking about. But uh, you have to listen to this episode because this little mushroom, this little fungus you put on your front lawn could certainly help curb or offset carbon emissions. And I wanna thank you, Kirti, for producing this episode and introducing us to Joseph. I certainly had a good time and I was honored to be co-host.
1: You're welcome.
2: How did you find Joseph?
1: oh i read the forbes article oh you did yeah that's how yeah it came up um on my work feed and that's how i found out about it
2: oh it was an excellent get and i'm sure our listeners will love it so enough with that let's go to joseph
1: Joseph Kelly, to the Who's Saving the Planet community. We're really excited to talk to you today.
0: Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Now, just
2: remind us one more time, and for the listeners, where you're calling in from, because you're a globetrotting
0: type of guy. We are located in beautiful Atlanta, Georgia. Well, I was just in Costa Rica, scouting the the next location for our next food forest. You know, we have sites in Nepal, Bali, and Uganda so far, and they're all locked down for... COVID in terms of Nepal and Bali, and then Uganda was locked down because of an election. So I won't be traveling again until they open back up.
2: The missus and I were talking about where we would like to go. And, uh, you know, once things clear up and Georgia was on the list.
0: Oh, yeah. We're, we're
2: big fans of Savannah.
0: I'm a huge Savannah fan, too. Yeah, that's yeah. my little weekend getaway. But if you get a chance to go to Nepal, we can set you up, too. We have <laughs> friends there.
2: I, I would be for that. My, my goal is to visit every continent at least once. But uh, so I think we're going to keep it local when we do get to travel, Is uh, so Savannah. That's where we got engaged, right oh. on Jones Street, which they say is the most romantic street in America, well, right in Savannah. The
0: home, and The whole town is romantic. It's haunted, yeah. but romantic too. <laughs> haunted,
2: but romantic. That's what I told my, my friends and family. They, like, apparently these ghost tours are hilarious in uh, Savannah.
0: Well, also, have you read, uh, this is a little far afield, but have you read uh, Midnight in the Garden, Good and Evil? Yes, I have. They have a long history of, uh, they don't call it voodoo, they call it uh, hoodoo. Hoodoo <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Cajun, cult, not, they don't call it Cajun culture, they call it uh, low country culture.
2: Low country uh, culture, yeah. Yeah,
0: it's very dynamic and it's still it's still uh, very vital in, in terms of the culture and the economics and everything.
2: Kirti, this murder case completely enveloped the town and it made savannah famous in various ways and they tried making a movie out of it but i enjoyed the book and the the tour so much that i actually i don't think i ever finished the film because the book is that good so if you ever get a chance to pick up the book and learn a little bit about savannah and this murder case it's a true crime story that everyone would probably enjoy
1: i'll look it up (laughs) yeah
2: but all right, back to business.
1: Yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> Take it away, Kirti.
1: For those of you that don't know, Joseph might have a trick up a sleeve that might be an answer to, to climate change. And you're here to tell us all about it. But let's start with your story. Like, how did you discover this solution?
0: Yeah, I have a, uh, a long background uh, as an entrepreneur and then also uh, socially driven businesses and nonprofits. I was an expatriate in Nepal uh, from 1996 to 1999. I worked with traditional Tibetan doctors at that time. At that time, the uh, practice of traditional Tibetan medicine was dying out. Uh, People were interested in Western medicine for for various reasons. Uh, And so I started a company that took their formulas and turned them into uh, herbal teas, which we sold through Whole Foods and we took the profits and we put it towards supporting Uh, There's very small, and by small, I mean like one to three students, five students, uh, medical schools and clinics throughout the Himalayas. And, you know, in that process, it really, particularly living in in Asia, it developed this passion in me to look at things holistically, not just from, you know, what do I think the solution would be sitting in Atlanta, Georgia, but what do people really need on the ground there? And it's not always what you think. And a lot of times you get there with a plan and then you, you throw the plan out on the second day uh, because it's not realistic and or it doesn't really serve the local communities. And then the time with climate is what I've, I'm seeing is with a fair number of climate projects, they are developed you know, in New York or Silicon Valley or Atlanta or Basel, Switzerland. And right now there's a big focus on numbers. Let's plant a billion trees, you know? And there's a couple of issues with that. There's an aspect of environmental colonialism is the first issue, is maybe they don't want a billion trees right there. Maybe they're fishermen and they don't like trees. The other aspect is uh, trees don't necessarily form an ecosystem unless you plant them correctly, right? Like just a billion trees isn't a forest, it's just a billion trees. And the third is there are, are secondary and tertiary issues to climate that aren't always addressed. One of them is just employing people. So there's also um, people about five, six years ago really got into drones, planting seeds by drones. There's an aspect to it that works, but then you know, you're not employing the people on the ground who really need employment. So you know, that was my first big project actually. And I, I learned so much from it going forward, which I brought back to, to climate projects.
2: We interviewed a, a, someone who specialized in planting trees via drones, drone tree fair we called it instead of drone warfare. Would that be an example of an interesting idea but not necess- necessarily one that is as viable as say the solutions that you and your team came up with?
0: I think it's a, it's a tool in the toolkit. And like any tool, you know, when all you have is a, a hammer everything looks like a nail. And I think the other aspect is in terms of climate, in terms of climate technology, it's, it's like the automobile industry in 1901. We don't know who's Henry Ford yet. And we don't know who's Stanley Steamer either. So you've got all these guys and women in their garages putting stuff together. There's probably not gonna be one solution. There's not gonna be one solution. It took us 250 years to build up this industrial infrastructure that we have. Um, so there's not going to be one solution that solves it. I will say that I think biological solutions are the answer in terms of scale. A lot of drawdown technology is mechanically based. I'm probably going to get some flack for this, but in my opinion, they're essentially giant air-sucking fans. <laughs> the problem with that is you know, you're going to have to put 100 million of them up around the world. Uh, the other problem is a lot of them run on fossil fuels, so they're chasing their own emission tail, and, you know, just if you have kids or grandkids, you say to them, Hey, we created this problem, the climate problem. Here's a solution. It's a giant air sucking fan. Just keep it running for 250 years. It's not an elegant solution. It's very alienating and trees are a much more elegant solution. In terms of the mycelium, the mycelium, in my opinion, is the missing link because trees, when they go, when they die, decay or go up in smoke, which they do, a lot of that carbon goes up into the atmosphere the same day, instantly. The revolutionary aspect of the mycelium is that the tree exchanges forty to seventy percent of its carbon, very hard-earned carbon through photosynthesis, with the mycelium network, and that stays in the carbon, in the carbon in the soil in an intractable uh, manner. It's more or less impervious to release.
1: Let's take it just one step back again. How does you know the average Joe? Pun intended discover mycelium, I mean, and, and what is it? A lot of people don't know what that is.
0: It's a type of fungi. We use ectomerizal and endomerizal species of fungi. They specifically developed in a symbiotic relationship with plants over billions of years, and it's a bit of the, the missing link. You know, Susan Simard has a great TED talk called How Trees Talk to Each Other, which can go over it much better than I can. But if you think of a tree, not just a tree, but all plants have root systems, uh, they can only go so far. They can't digest rocks and they can't connect to each other. Well, some trees, I guess their root systems connect to each other. So what the mycelium does or these particular types of mycelium, it's like stalling software in the soil that lets the trees network. Interesting.
1: Facebook oh. for
0: trees. Yeah, 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 Facebook for trees. <laughs> she, she calls it the, the World Wide web. World, wait, no, the, the, the wood wide web. Oh, nice. <laughs> the wood wide web. I yeah. like that. If you look at it, the trees. So what it does is extends our root system a thousandfold, not just down, but like in this capillary system with a tremendous surface area. Fungi exude enzymes. So fungi, essentially, they're closer to, to human beings and animals than they are to plants. It's like if our stomachs were turned outside they exude enzymes and they digest things in the environment, including rocks. So they take rocks and soil and they, they break it down to its mineral components. They give that to the plant. They let the plants source water and then they can transfer carbon between each other. They can even gift carbon to another tree or plant. It's a revolutionary uh, system. And it's been, it's been, people say, well, why isn't it there? Well, it's been disrupted by industrial agriculture in a lot of ways. Uh, if you, if you apply NPK to the plant, it's almost like giving like a 15 year old kid steroids, you know, they're going to do quite well. And you say to them, well, you should really be eating brown rice and quinoa every morning. They say, why would I look at me? I look like Tony Atlas. I don't need to, <laughs> but at some point it collapses. So we're just reestablishing to the best of our knowledge, the system that existed before we brought Shell Oil on as a client, we had 50 sites throughout North America, Mm-hmm. So, you know, not green roofs, meadows, grassland farms, but, you know, in the southwest, in the Midwest, in the northwest, you don't want to be a one-trick pony and be able to do it on one site. It needs to be, to be scalable and viable, it needs to work across a variety of sites.
1: Yeah, so I have a question about that. Like, how does it work? You know, you said you work with, um with two, of, two, two of species, and you know, every time you you cross a border, you're always asked to fill out a form, like, are you bringing in anything foreign? Like, you know, yeah. how does it work? Like, how come this thing can go everywhere and be fine?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. So it can actually go everywhere except Hawaii. Uh, That's interesting. <laughs> they've had a disastrous history of invasive species coming in, though. Oh, I see. So the the answer to the question is it's a little bit of a complicated answer, but the short answer is that mycelium is universally genomic. So if you're looking at a species in the American Midwest, the the genome is the same as a species in Germany. Now, the criticism people say is that each biome has a unique uh, microbiological population, which is completely true. But then our answer is, again, we're not, we're reestablishing this relationship that existed for billions of years. Uh, so we're, we're not creating an invasive situation. We're actually reestablishing uh, a natural biome. And then, you know, we also plant forests. We have sites in uh, Nepal, Bali, and Uganda. And when we do that, we use the Miyawaki method, which I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with that.
2: Tell us. Sounds kind of cool.
0: It's, it's, we looked at every method we could find in it, and it's the most useful one. So Miyawaki was a Japanese arborist uh, and he saw that Japan is rocked by these natural catastrophes, usually uh, a uh, underwater earthquake followed by a tsunami. And the trees on the coast that people thought were indigenous would get caught by the waves, go inland, cause a lot of damage and even death and then get pulled back out and cause more damage than death. So he went to all the, uh, not all, but he went to a lot of the temples in Japan, Shinto and Buddhist, whatever temples they have. He found the actual indigenous species, not the species that the Dutch brought or the British brought or the Americans brought. So he developed this protocol where you do extensive research before you plan a site. You don't just assume this is uh, indigenous. You review uh, botanical archives, Uh, you you talk to elders, you even look at old paintings, old poems, old epics, you develop a species matrix, you say, these are actually indigenous. And then when you plant them, you don't just plant trees, you plant in a, I think there's five different levels to it. And you also plant in a very um, densely. So conventional wisdom is that trees need light, but in this thinking, the trees will compete with each other and they'll grow very, very quickly. So we use that in Nepal. We planted a pilot project uh, last December, and it's about six feet tall now. You know, we planted the middle of the winter, and then after, um, after about 15-20 years, no one can tell whether it's an artificial forest or whether it's a, a person planted forest as well. In terms of carbon capture, you, you capture a tremendous amount of carbon in the biomass above the soil, And then with the mycelium inoculant, you capture a lot under the soil as well. And you also prep the soil extensively. You remove up to a meter of it. In addition to the mycelium, you add manure, common manure, chicken manure, leaves. It's a whole witch's brew, basically, you add to it. But you're making Mm -hmm. this kind of super forest that grows very quickly. It's great for a youth component too, because you can take a kid there when they're five or four or five, six, and you'd be like, oh, we're going to plant this forest. And you can take them back next year and be like, look, it's taller than you are.
2: <laughs> yeah, that is pretty cool.
0: So it's literally
2: literally, uh, working to offset climate change from the ground up, Yeah, one to say.
0: From the ground up, also in a concentric circle out to the community as well. So in, in my opinion, a lot of climate projects suffer from what I call the pastoral fallacy the sense that uh, climate projects need to be pretty. Uh, they need to be out in rural areas. We uh, mm-hmm. need to exclude people as much as possible. And again, if we're gonna scale up, you're gonna need to include local and indigenous communities in the process where they don't view this as some kind of like invasion almost. So our projects, instead of being large, are often small, as small as 500 square meters. They're not always rural. We like doing urban projects. People in Rio de Janeiro uh, need shade and food and medicine and flowers as much as anyone else. And then also um, you need to serve the local community. You gotta say like, hey, this forest is a benefit to you and particularly in terms of employment. So when we develop a project, we have three pro-social missions in addition to planning the forest. And these are loosely based on United Nations 2030 development goals. The first is extending and preserving biodiversity and habitat. UN has said we've lost a million species, we're losing a million more. The second is cleaning up air, water and plastic pollution. And particularly in Asia, plastic pollution is a big deal. You have rivers that are clogged by plastic pollution. And the third is empowering women in the developing world. By doing that, you enroll the local communities where they're excited about what you're doing instead of view it as just another project or kind of a feel good kind of thing.
1: And how long can the carbon be stored for in the soil by these mycelium networks? What's the permanence?
0: Well, in the, in the, in the boreal forest, it's been over millennium. So thousands of years, they may even measure it increasing. So th- the way it works is the mycelium makes it intractable, which means it's, it's, I don't know if you want to say impervious but nearly impervious to release into the atmosphere. If you think about that from a biologic perspective, it makes sense. So in these boreal forests, that means that the new generation of trees can use that carbon to grow, right? So when the seeds come down, the carbon's there for them. It's not back up in the atmosphere. But um, we say nearly indefinitely, because in, in in terms of our time frame, let's say long enough, right? Um, I, this kind of a, as a note, a lot of things people don't talk about in terms of the, the carbon uh, climate crisis is, you know, people talk about limiting emissions, ramping up renewables. They're both much needed. But CO2 has a half-life of about a thousand years in the atmosphere. So even if we were to go 100% green right now, the temperature would keep rising for at least a thousand years. So we need to draw down massive amounts of CO2. Some people say a trillion tons, some people say 2 trillion tons.
2: And so how do we do it? And is, even, is that even possible?
0: Yeah, it is possible. I'll kind of segue into the net zero aspect of it. You know, we started saying, well, how can we do this with existing infrastructure? We, we don't even have to plant a forest if we don't have to. And so that's why we started looking at American lawns. Lawns are obviously like a, an image of Americana Uh, From an environmental perspective, they're kind of a disaster, Uh, (laughs) but they are actually capturing carbon currently. And there's a a lot of research about this as well, going back about 30 years. So the average size American lawn or the mean size American lawn is 10,871 square feet. It captures about a ton of atmospheric CO2 per year already. By inoculating it with mycelium, you can can double the, the carbon capture of the American lawn.
1: And does it require like any extra water? I mean, is there going to be a water footprint of it? Well, it actually
0: less water. Actually, because again, it's it's increasing the resiliency. It's increasing the ability of the the root system to access water as well. So American lawns capture about one point three, uh, no six hundred fifty million metric tons of CO two annually. By them, we could get up to one point three gigatons, which wow. is I'd have to double check the numbers, but I think that's 15 to 20% of American emissions.
2: There's literally no excuse now. So if you're a person who lives in a house with a front lawn, you can help offset climate change.
0: Yes, and not just that, we, we also developed a, like a PEZ-like dispenser so that you have house plants or succulents, you can inoculate mm-hmm. your house plants. We don't know how much carbon your house plants <laughs> has. We have no data whatsoever.
2: No, but we love PEZ. Anything that has to do with PEZ, where I'm, I'm, I'm on board.
0: Also, well, we had all these millennials say like, I don't have a lawn, I don't think I'm ever gonna have a lawn. So we're like, well, now you have a Pez-like dispenser. So don't say you didn't inoculate your succulents. Awesome. All right, so I got a lawn, what do I do? Uh, it's simple, you know, you, you take uh, one of the orbs, this is Melvin, we have the earth, we have, <laughs> this is some nerdy thing that my assistant goes back to some nerd culture. I don't know exactly. <laughs>
2: Um, It looks like a a gem from like a video game.
0: I think you're right.
2: (laughs) All right. So here for the folks who are, we're going to have a visual component somewhat on Instagram. (laughs) We've been pretty good with putting video up on Instagram, but for the folks who are listening to this podcast, I have to describe each of these things you're holding up. One looks like a toadstool from super Mario brothers. It's a little mushroom with a happy face toadstool. He was the little mushroom that, guides you toward the princess. He gives you superpowers so you can grow big. And the other thing you held up is obviously a replica of the earth. And then another one looks like a gem. So yeah, basically you buy one of these things and what happens?
0: Yeah, so these are half pound of mycelium. Again, this is the exact same mycelium blend we sold to Shell Oil in these big, you know, 50 kilogram crates. You simply dissolve it in water. It takes 30, to 45 minutes. And then you water your lawn with a hose sprayer or with a watering can. And then, you know, it's a little bit anticlimactic. (laughs) It's going to, under the soil, it will develop the symbiotic relationship. It really is symbiotic. The mycelium is not taking over the plant. It actually sends out enzymes that say, hey, do you want to do this? Are you up for this? You're not. And the plants can say no, and sometimes they do. But only 17% of the biome, so if you have a lawn, so you got plants, you got flowers, you got some shrubs, you got some trees, only 17% have to say yes, and then it will form this network.
1: So can you see it? You know, like when you um, grow like peas in your garden and then the rhizobacteria form a relationship with it, and then you can see all these nitrogen nodules at the end of the year when you, when you look yeah. at your garden. Can you see that with uh, mycelium?
0: Sometimes you can. Um, it would just appear like a, a, like a, a kind of white, almost grayish. Um, it almost looks like moss, you know? So sometimes you can see it depending on what plants you have. And you know, when you say lawn, we say lawn, but that can mean a dozen different grasses across the United States. Some have roots six inches deep, some are 10 feet deep. So it just really de- depends on the biome. But yeah, you can see it sometimes. We don't want to promise you can see it, uh, but sometimes you can. Again, a lawn is like an artificial grassland, right? Yeah. So some of it is on lawn, some of it's on, grasslands, Some of it is on golf courses. Uh, for some reason there's a lot of research on carbon capture in, in golf courses. Um, and so when they have done inoculation it's it's worked very well. And, and golf courses are obviously extensively managed and fertilized. The only the only thing you're going to want to do is uh, add a fungicide because it is a fungi and uh, it would it would kill it.
1: When you say this about golf courses being excellent study sites that like the scientist in me is screaming out like, you have such an amazing opportunity here to have like so many lawns and house plants as study sites or study objects and even run controls. Yep. Are, you, are you looking into that at all?
0: We have an R&D component, but that would burn up our bandwidth pretty quickly. If someone else wants to do it, God bless, we would cooperate with them. <laughs> Anyone at MIT is listening, reach out, we'll talk. But we just, you know, we can't do everything. We've got to really focus on what our our core mission is.
2: Well, that brings us to this, the viability chapter of this episode. What can you guys do? Because I imagine like if I was a government official, I look at this stuff and I'm like, okay, proof of concept. Let's look at it and then look at all federal property where there's lawns and things where we can incorporate this and make it part of an educational program for kids. Cause it seems like it would be fun for kids.
1: Tangible aspect of like explaining climate action like something that you can actually see.
0: Yeah. right. We, we wanted to make it visceral so that you actually have to touch it. And if you're stuck at home with your kids you'd be like, "Hey, yeah, it's an afternoon project. And when we initially had the packaging we even set it up like a game where we had like ages and like the little icon time to play, I forget what else, number of players. <laughs> so, um, Biden has used the term net zero in speeches, which I've never heard a, a, a politician use before, but I would much rather work with like a hundred conscious mamas who are just have kids and earn a sustainability. Th- those are the vanguard of the climate revolution. They really are because they're doing it because their, their hearts are in it, right? Right. The passion's there. And then our other passion is working with global communities. And so they carry on regardless of what's going on with the United States. You know, Nepal has been locked down with COVID for about eight months. We have workers there and we kept them on the payroll. And again, we're a for-profit business but we kept them on the payroll as long as we could. And then they had food scarcity. So we've done two food giveaways for Nepali workers where you give them rice and beans and some petty cash Uganda just went through an election. They've had a a president in power for 40 years and he just got elected again. So we don't, we're not looking for anyone to do it. We we wanna do it and we wanna form this global community with people in the developed world because we are the ones putting the carbon out with people in the developing world because they are the ones uh, dealing with the the damage from uh, climate change. I've been going to Nepal for 30 years. And I, when I go up in the Himalayas, I go through valleys that used to have glaciers and the glaciers aren't there. Mm -hmm. Like you can see it. It's not abstract at all. Uh, So, you know, again, if someone in the Biden administration wants to reach out, let's talk, but we're not pitching them or we're not planning a business development around them whatsoever. We have, I'd say at this point, two dozen global communities who've reached out to us and said, and I'd say a dozen in Africa, they say, we love the idea. We saw what you done in Nepal. We would love to have a, because f- they are food forests too. They can go in there and pick fruits, flowers. Like in Bali, they use flowers for daily ceremonies and they're, go ahead and pick. That's exactly what it's for. So we haven't been holding our breath. I, I think the best thing getting rid of Trump is done is just get rid of a lot of the confusion over climate. There was so much misinformation given out, um, and so it's going to hopefully clear the air—kind of pun intended. But you know, we're not. I mean, again, the military—you know—some colonel in the U.S. military is like, "I'd like to put this on every military base in the world and give, you know, email me." But you know, we don't have any kind of business development around that. We we really like grassroots. From the bottom up i guess because the biological aspects from the bottom up, local communities uh reaching out to us us reaching out to them proving on small sites first and then scaling up instead of doing these big massive projects that have one point of failure and then if that doesn't work out boom you're out of business and so the you know einstein said you can't solve a problem with the same thinking you created the problem with right So the idea of having just one big player, like the US military who does do climate stuff and they have projections of the the dangers of climate change. The idea of like, there's gonna be one big player that comes in and brings this big industrial infrastructure from over here and puts it over here, I think is flawed. I think there's gonna be a lot of solutions to climate change. I think it's gonna look very differently in every community I think it needs to serve secondary and tertiary issues in this community, whether it's pollution, whether it's employment, whether it's women's rights, whether it's bringing disadvantaged groups into the process. And I think those are gonna be the elegant solutions and the ones that last, right? They don't just burn out and fall apart. That their kids will be doing it and their grandkids will be doing it.
1: But what about you know playing a part in kind of changing how um, the modern agricultural sector works. I watched "Kiss the Ground," and it's you know really sad. That, like yeah. there's so much potential to have this kind of self-sustaining um, carbon capturing system, and it feels like you know what you have with net zero could be a, could be a part of that.
0: We're open to it. We we were approached by a large ag company about two years ago, but we were just speaking different languages at that time. And big ad companies do use mycelium in terms of uh, yield. Uh, a lot of cannabis country, uh, companies use mycelium because incre- it's obviously increases the yield. There's no debate about that. You know, it's like a marriage. I mean, like, you know, you're like, I could marry a hundred people because this, this guy's really handsome and this guy's really rich. And they, like, you gotta, you gotta make a choice and say like, what am I gonna be happy doing every day? Uh, where's my passion at? Where do my talent shine? And partly because of my background, it's, it's working with the global communities. Now the net zero is trying to connect that to, to kind of everyday Americans as well, where they can become part of these communities. Like you can go to our site in Nepal, like it's not fenced off. Like, I mean, um, you can go to a site in Bali or Uganda. So community building, that's what I really enjoy. And it's fun too. I mean, I, love, I go and I plant these forests, like I'm there in the field. And that's, I, I love that stuff, you know, and I love meeting people. And then, you know, the second day you realize, oh, there's a festival going on today. So we're going to get nothing done today whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> so I hand in my little notebook. This is a big day. That's the joy of it. And I, I think it ties into like with a lot of climate, there's a lot, um, a lot of doom and gloom.
2: Yeah.
0: And there's a lot of guilt and shame. You know like oh you fly and you drive to work and you eat meat and there there's aspects to that but i think we need to make this like the greatest game of the 21st century like you know you have a you have a carbon footprint of 20 tons as american that's doable a trillion tons that's like existential dread that's like i'm just going to watch netflix and i'm not going to watch a documentary either i'm going to watch like you know, Cobra Kai. yeah Cobra <laughs> So when, when you start the conversation, like, so your footprint's 20 tons, this captures a ton. Eat less meat, that's a ton. It starts becoming like manageable and kind of fun in a way too. Yeah. Like o- almost gamified at that point. And there's, there's a lot of embedded carbon in the environment. Like it's, you, it's, in the United States, a homeless person has a carbon footprint of 8.5 metric tons. So you could live like a monk or a nun, and you're not going to con- completely eliminate your carbon footprint. So that's where these these uh, projects come in, because you can do it somewhere else. You can do it in Uganda. We could do it in the United States. We could do it in the Midwest. We could have a huge grassland area that we inoculate. Um,
2: all all and- of the Trump golf courses.
1: <laughs> Finally, they come <laughs> to some use. Yeah,
0: yeah uh, we could do. Yeah, <laughs> I forgot Trump's golf courses. Yeah, or all the military bases, all the state parks, or all this or that. But um, you know, the idea that someone from above is going to just do it—that it might happen at some point. Um, we're not there yet, and we've got to show that we can do You show it—you can do it on a thousand square meters, and you can do it on an acre, and you can do it in ten acres. So and you
2: held—you the- held up the the mushroom. You said this can capture a ton, which is. Oh, oh, so cool that uh, something that little and adorable that looks like a, a bar of soap almost yeah. um, can capture a ton. How do I find it? How much does it cost? Yeah. Uh, give us the, uh, the info on that.
0: You can find Melvin uh, and the other orbs on Kickstarter right now under net zero. And the early bird pricing is $99. I, that's,
2: a, that's a great gift for the kids. And and for your loved ones, if they're if they have a garden or a front lawn, I I want to uh, make sure we get in some time to talk about the Sacred Rivers Project. Okay, what is it? Give us the rundown.
0: Well, we we really have been talking about the Sacred Rivers Project in a lot of ways. So when Hive Mine was really focused on uh, uh, targeting corporations, big corporations, scaling up through them, we realized that a lot of times they're just not ready to scale up, basically particularly internally. Our focus was on doing in-house projects for them. Uh, So Sacred Rivers Climate Project, we decided to sell carbon credits, essentially. And we wanted to develop these sites with these different attributes that we've talked about, these other pro-social missions. Um, And so then when COVID hit, and that was going fantastic, then COVID hit. And that's when we came up with the retail project, Net Zero. But an exciting aspect of Sacred Rivers Climate Project we haven't talked about is we are gonna start selling drawdown credits to the public. So up to this point, you can buy offsets, you can go to, to TerraPass is a great company, you can buy offsets. There's an individual you haven't been able to buy drawdowns. So we're, we're developing an app where you can go on the app and you can, um, well, first off, you can lower your footprint through lifestyle. Uh, and then if you wanna get rid of the rest of it, get to actual net zero, you can buy credits that will go to one of these sites to pay for the sites.
2: What's the app gonna be called? Net Zero. Net Zero, the Net Zero app. When's it gonna be ready?
0: Uh, We're hoping spring or summer of this year, 2021. Okay. Um, One kind of exciting aspect of that is a big issue with talking about climate is I think everyone's talking about different things and they're hard to visualize. So the example is the American footprint's 20 tons, metric tons. What does that mean? How can CO2 have tonnage? It's a gas, right? Gas. So the way that translates into, so when you take in carbon from the soil, you put in the atmosphere, it goes from carbon to CO2. 20 metric tons is about 30,000 square feet in the atmosphere. So the app will actually show you through augmented reality, your footprint, uh, 30,000 square feet is too large that you do on your screen. So we're going to do it like an overhead view of a map and it will cover your neighborhood. Ah. Then you can uh, compare it to icons. So for example, the White House, I think it's 55,000 square feet. You can compare it to Taj Mahal, which is uh, 45,000 square feet. You'll be able to uh, break it out. So if you say, well, I just wanna look at my diet. So say your diet footprint is seven metric tons. You will be able to see that, or maybe four in your backyard. And then it'll give you a survey. If you if you change your, your lifestyle, you eat less meat. It will be three, say, you'll be able to see in different colors, the larger footprint, vice footprint. As you buy the credits, uh, you'll be able to see it disappear. You can share it on social media. So we, we call it Pokemon Go meets climate.
2: <laughs> I love it.
0: If it hasn't become apparent yet. <laughs>
2: Kirti and I are going to go head to head and see who's got the better carbon footprint. Yeah. When this app comes out, we're going to download it <laughs> and I will most likely lose, but, Please do. Please uh, do. I'm challenging Kirti right yeah. now. You
1: should know I'm extremely competitive. <laughs> oh. Yeah.
0: Well, again, we wanted to gamify it, you know, you know, you can right. play all these different games and, um, why not game the, gamify the climate crisis and, and visualize it too? So you're like, oh wait, my my diet footprint fills up like my backyard and my neighbor's backyard, I had no idea, I'm gonna eat less meat. What would that look like? Boom, oh, that's significantly less. You know, If people wanna leave it at that, then God bless, they can just do lifestyle changes. But at a certain point, if you wanna get net zero, you're, you're gonna to need to buy some credits or plant your own forest or do something uh, in addition to that.
2: Well, we love to play our games, and if everybody's playing, then we all oh, man, win. Yeah. Kirsty, I've emptied my clip. Do you have any closing thoughts for for Joseph? Um, if you want to take it home? One
1: question related to what you just said about the credits. You know, when you're not working through one of these, you know, gold standard type accreditors, explain to us how you can guarantee, like, that you have like these kind of buffer pool of credits that help, you know, in case there's a reversal of some kind with fires or something.
0: Uh, yeah. There's two ways, the, the technology for uh, measuring um, soil carbon is, 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 goes back to the 1820s, it's very well understood. So we, we measure at every site, and if other people wanna come and measure at the site, they're welcome to do so. There's also a new wave of technology that's superseding a lot of those aspects. So we're in talks with an Israeli company called Albo that has pioneered a satellite system where the satellite can go over a fairly small site as well and get a measurement of the above ground biomass of carbon and the below ground biomass of carbon as well. So, you know, the way the carbon uh, carbon system works now is you you have to submit a proposal, they review the proposal. I think they send it to a third party reviews the proposal. You go on and do the project, Then the third party physically goes to the project. They do the exact same thing you're doing, which is measuring. And only about 25% of credits now actually get sold on the market because the process is so arcane and there's so many bottlenecks to it and sticking points that very few people get through it. And then it also creates a need for these tremendous projects. You have to have like a $5 million project in order to, to justify all these costs. So when we submitted to Vera, we, had a, we submitted a note to them of all our technology, all our metadata going back 12 years, and they, they verified all that. So um, the technology is pretty well understood. Uh, there's a lot of issues with people, du- you know they want to double credit. So you, you know, they don't want people selling the credits twice. But again, we're grassroots enough that you can go out to our site in Nepal and see for yourself. And if you want to bring your soil kit and measure it, and send it to your local agricultural lab. And God bless, you're welcome to do it.
2: That's a good spot to leave it, I think. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> leave, leave the folks with God bless. <laughs> All right. Uh Joseph, uh, how do people reach you? Are you on social media? Are you on the uh, the interwebs? Uh if people have a question, if they want to reach out to you or or the company, where do they go?
0: Uh, You know, they can email me at josephkelly at btechhive.com. Our site is Sacred Rivers Climate Project, which is www.srcproject.com. And then we're on Kickstarter now under Net Zero as well. And they have different methods to reach out to me. And uh, yeah, if you're Elon Musk or a colonel in the U.S. military and you want to scale this up tomorrow, then you can reach out to me and put as much time as you need to talk about that.
2: Yeah, I, I think maybe Elon should spend less time trying to terraform other planets and just try to terraform this planet, <laughs>
0: make terraform, it for the better. Terraform Earth was our first uh, tagline. We considered, <laughs> but then people people didn't get it. They're like, well, "What do you mean? Like, repeat it one more time." Our tagline now is "Join the Carbon Revolution." Okay, we were going to call it Terraform Earth. Yeah, uh, with that idea that if you think you're going to terraform Mars, you need <laughs> to terraform Earth first right but it didn't it didn't click with a lot of people but it'll click with you so get in touch
2: yeah get in touch you thank you so much joseph for coming on the show i appreciate it
0: thank you guys gals everyone
1: tuning in everyone if you're interested about melvin the mushroom check out joseph's kickstarter campaign you can just search for net zero on kickstarter or follow the link on our webpage
2: so far they are north of ninety thousand dollars of their pledged ten thousand dollar goal so they super exceeded their goal 769 backers so far you can be 770 go to kickstarter.com and look up Net Zero, Melvin the Mushroom. Thank you, Kirti, for producing this episode. And I hope there are more episodes from you and the team of us. I think we made a pretty good pair. What do you think?
1: I think so. I think uh, you were a fun (laughs) guy.